environment. You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Hello and welcome to Why We Do What We Do. This is uh, your host, Abraham. And your co-host, Ryan O. And so today we're going to be tackling, um, this, this is a dense topic. Very. So, yeah. Um, and we're going to have to sort of scratch the surface like we do with many things. And so it's, we're going to make things maybe seem a little bit more simple than they really are at times. And uh, I guess I'm just teasing a whole lot, not actually talking. I haven't said what we've been talking about today. Although if you're listening to this, you probably saw the title. Um, So we're talking about genetics. um, And it's more complicated than that because we're actually talking about um, genes and how they relate to behavior, which is related to behavioral genetics. We're also talking about epigenetics and um, basically trying to examine the way that genes um, influence our behavior and Sort of vice versa, versa. right? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So let's. uh, I would actually like to start by uh, just revisiting this definition of behavior. Okay. Yeah. So remember that from like one of our our first episodes we did. Yeah. So our second episode we did what is psychology, and we kind of talked about what is behavior, what Mm -hmm. is included in it, the mind, the brain, the 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 various different. um, What other entities are there? Uh, well, the environment, um, past experiences, current circumstances. Yeah, I was trying to get the. Oh, like the biological components. Yeah, like what other? Entities? I remember. I remember mentioning the liver, but just just to, <laughs> just to give an example of an organ. I yeah. could have said lungs or okay. intestines or whatever, but yeah. And we basically came around to that it is the the whole uh, person, right? Yeah, that is behaving. Right. So it's all those things coming together. Yeah, behavior is the is the whole interaction. So it's all the the whole biological organism is composed of all these pieces, and that the entire interaction of the biological of uh, the person, basically, or the the animal mm-hmm. um, in their circumstances, all that back and forth. That's what we're calling behavior, basically. Okay. Yeah. So, and the reason that we're talking about this again is because this comes back to placing a really strong emphasis when we're trying to understand behavior, both conceptually and scientifically of looking at behavior as it uh, with respect to the whole organism, not just the brain and not just another body part, like the body part that that's performing an action, but the whole, the whole, uh, some, the, some of its parts, I guess. Yeah. So keep that in the back of uh, your mind as we're kind of going through this stuff, right? Yeah. Okay. So let's jump into genes. Let's just go straight into it and describe what they are. Right. So probably you've heard something along the lines of, someone has good genes or, you know, to what extent is their behavior genetic and what that, um, so let's, let's unpack what that means. Like, what is a gene? Where, where is a gene? You know, how, what role does it play? What does it actually do? And so, um, I'm going to start by, I'm going to start a little bit big and by big, I mean, extremely small, but I'm gonna start a little bit big and then to shrink <laughs> down all the way to, to the, the, uh, the gene portion of this. Okay. All right, so the very first part is um, – well, it could be larger than this. But the one I'm going to start is called a gamete. And this is just a reproductive cell and you probably know them as a sperm or a spermazoa. And another reproductive cell is the, the ovum or the egg. And so these – like I said, these are cells. They're the reproductive cells. And so that's, that's the largest piece I'm going to start with. Okay? Okay. So next part is the cell, right? Yeah, so uh, inside the cell, basically. Yeah, so inside the cell is the nucleus. Right. That is uh, essentially kind of 
it's oftentimes pointed out as like the most important part, but again, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a part and yep. it, it plays an important role. Yeah. And so, all right. So you have your gamete with your reproductive cell inside this reproductive cell, you get your nucleus. Then inside your nucleus, you have these clusters of chromosomes. Um, your reproductive cells are going to have about 23 of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then inside, uh, so, and what the chromosomes are comprised of these sequences of strings um, and these are uh, these are your base pairs, right? Yeah, DNA base pairs, and and particular segments of those DNA base pairs are genes. Okay. Okay. So basically, you have your DNA. It's in these long coils that make up a chromosome, and segments of those coils are called are called genes. And they specifically what they do is they code for the production of proteins. Um, but so just to go down a little bit further, yeah. <laughs> so we have those genes. So the chromosomes and the genes, again, they're made up of these. Uh, the the whole name is deoxyribonucleic acid, which is DNA, and um, though that's the one of those. I mean, you can keep going smaller, but that's that's up mm-hmm. for our purposes where we want to go. Um, you know, someone has you have good DNA, or it's in your DNA. <laughs> that that whole idea. Um, so with DNA, we're talking about those base pairs. Okay, so it's sort of. Like, so, I, I was equating this to a. Uh, a Russian nesting doll. Yeah. It's like yeah. you open it up and it's a little bit smaller, open up like a little bit smaller. Um, but in this case, they're real, they're pretty different structures. They're very, very small too. Yeah, they're much smaller than a Russian nesting doll. Anyway, so genes, the segments of the of DNA, or I guess the DNA that makes up these segments that exist in the chromosome, what they do, these genes are responsible for the – they code for the production of certain proteins in certain sequences. That's that's the most general statement is just that they will either cause a protein to occur or they will inhibit a protein they, and they, they cause them to occur in these particular sequences. So um, what's really crucial in understanding these is whether or not a particular gene is present and to what extent it is expressed. And on top of that is um, how other genes are also expressed will affect how that one is expressed, okay? So it's sort of like thinking about if you have two colors, um, when you mix them, then they change what they look like. So, and that's a similar way. I mean, a very simplistic reductionist way of looking at. Yeah. Uh, so this this exponentially gets very complex immediately. Yeah, right? and there's there's so much to know about that. And I think just the simplest way of looking at it is that genes are these segments of of our biology, mm-hmm. very small. Um, and what they do is they code for the production of proteins in particular sequences, and those genes and their expression interact with each other. And so the entire genetic makeup of a person is referred to as their genotype. Okay. okay. So you might look – if you were to code someone's entire genetic sequence that they described as their genotype, that's what their genes consist of, what's present in their body. So if we bring, back, bring this back into um, like behavior and like uh, our genes and you know, genetics, like what do they code for? Like how much of a role do they play in like what I do, like why we do what we do every day, yeah. right? Right. Um, it reminds me of – a resource I really came uh, fond of, and there's a guy, N.H. Uh, Pronko, and what he talked about was he, he liked to take things like this, like nature versus nurture, or like mm-hmm. genes and behavior, like what role do these kind of separate and play? Um, and I think it's important to bring up that if you're kind of separating things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess we're taught a lot of, through our culture, of like these things play a certain role. Um, they play a role in the context of everything else, Right. Yep. Um, and if you put emphasis on one or the other, or kind of in these dichotomies, sort of like two things, like genes and behavior, he basically says you're already kind of running into uh, a problem there because you're not focusing on everything that could potentially be playing a part.
part, right? Okay. Um, I guess we get to a little bit later, but the the environment plays a heavy role in how all this happens, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's just part of the whole interaction expression of of what the biological organism, what it's going to do, like how it's going to turn out, what it's capable of. All of those things are just they're inherently part of the same process, and trying to separate them becomes not only really difficult but kind of pointless because they. Um, because they're always influencing one another. That being said, there are reasons to look at these things separately, and we'll get to those in a moment. Yes, and I would say like it's very important to understand it at these different levels, these psychological yeah. levels, the biological levels, the chemical levels, right. etc. Um, but it's them all coming together in this kind of integrated uh, whole event that right. is very important to never lose sight of. Right. right. Yeah. So I guess uh, I should walk back and say it's not pointless, except from the standpoint of just conceptually understanding how behavior works. That that distinction is not all that important, and so it really depends, as you really just pointed out, on the sort of the level of of analysis that you're making. Right. Okay. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Level analysis. I like that. Maybe the listeners enjoy that too. Okay. Level analysis. Let's <laughs> refer to that. Cool. New buzzword for the episode. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so there's a couple of really good metaphors that I like that I um, I want to tie into helping describe or just give a relatable example to an extent of what of how genes and our environment sort of interact with each other and to bring home this idea of how they're part of the same process. And the first one, there was this article published in maybe the 90s, I can't even remember, but it's called Lessons from the Pillsbury Doughboy. And it's specifically with respect to the interaction of genes, understanding like what genes sort of contribute to uh, behavior and understanding behavior. It's a little bit simplistic, but I really like the idea in it. And okay. how it works is it's this idea that if you're making bread, you have wheat or flour of some kind, you've got your flour and your sugar and your water and your yeast and maybe eggs or something. But those are sort of, you have these main ingredients. Mm -hmm. Okay. In this metaphor, all those ingredients, the flour and the water and the sugar and the yeast, those are the genes. And what you can take is the same amount and the same exact type of flour, sugar, water, yeast, and put it in all these different bowls. And one of these bowls we're going to mix it up really, really good, and we're going to let it sit, and we're going to let it rise. Mm -hmm. And the other bowl, we're going to mix it up really, really good, but then we're going to immediately put it on the stove, and we're going to start cooking it. And one of these bowls, we're going to mix up, let it really good, and we're going to let it rise. And these two that we're going to let rise, one of them we're going to bake, one of them we're going to fry. Um, we're going to um, add other things to them. And so the point of this whole metaphor was if you look at each one of these bowls – they all have the exact same ingredients, which is to say in this metaphor, the exact same genes. But depending on how you cooked them, like if you fried them or baked them or um, roasted them on the skillet or whatever. How they're expressed, right? Yeah, they're going to they're gonna be completely different. You get something that's like pancakes or something that's like a loaf of bread or something that's like a sourdough. Scones. Scones, yeah. Just magically get scones. <laughs> um, so all of these are uh, – it's just basically speaking to the, how it's prepared – is extremely important in understanding how it's going to turn out in the end. Even when you have the exact same ingredients in the exact same quantity, and they might even start at the exact same time, if they experience, if they go through these different types of, in this case, experiences, then they turn out differently. Yeah. Okay. So there's this exercise I like to do in my class that um, it would be really fun to bring in a whole bunch of flour and wheat and sugar and yeast and have my yeah, students yeah. mess with that and make a mess everywhere. <laughs> uh, but instead, what I decided to do was um, bring in, um, paint and I gave everybody four Ooh. of the exact same color. Okay. Okay. Um, but then I gave them different paintbrushes and a different canvas mm -hmm. and I just said, paint something, whatever you want. doesn't matter. And then I wanted to look and say, how many of you made the exact same picture? 
Ooh. Right? Did anybody make the same picture? No. Would, no no one ever. Not. Yeah. <laughs> like you get some like sort of similar themes. People are likely to draw um, pictures of people. Sometimes they'll draw, you know, a tangible object like a flower. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's just smeared paint everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And so um, – but nobody ever made anything that was even really looked like they were really the same. Unless there's common shapes, which you might see. But the point I was getting at was like if you look at, again, the ingredients in this case or the genes or the colors. But everybody else brought to those colors their own experiences and their own thoughts and their own – and so the way that those the, – their picture shaped up depended on one, the type of canvas that they used okay. and two, the type of brush that they used. And then three, also the amount of each of those paint colors that they used, yeah. right? So some of those colors were um, – even though they started with the exact same thing, some of those colors were expressed a lot. And some of them were not expressed hardly at all, uh-huh. you know. And be, you know, depending on the color of the canvas, you know, people if the canvas was white, they didn't use a lot of white. Yeah. Um, but all that's to say that this is just one of those things where even when you have the same exact starting place genetically, those circumstances, like the environment, in this case, like the paintbrush and the canvas, those are all going to affect how that picture shows up, like what you choose to draw, how much space you have to draw, all of those things affect. And so that was sort of my um, exercise in just trying to give people. A, a metaphor to interact with that was supposed to be sort of a demonstration of how genes interact and how although the the colors determined what kind of colors they could get yeah and what kind of pictures they could make they didn't really affect in any way the overall picture that they would produce for the most part yeah i mean the brush kind of did but again that was one of the circumstances of their mm-hmm. environment yeah, yeah. It's just sort of like this, what's available is this so this is how it's likely to turn out Okay, so a couple guys making a podcast talking about this sort of stuff and why we do what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe have a little bit of validity based on our backgrounds and where we're <laughs> from, right? Yeah. Um, but what uh, what do the experts have to say on this? So I pulled from three sources, um, and so these aren't actually geneticists, but there are these these people who um, the the first one I had two quotes from, and she wrote a um, what a really commonly used book on child development. Okay. And so the first thing that she had in her book that I really liked on this was she says, "quote chromosomes and genes do not determine behavior." End quote. Okay. It's <laughs> pretty bold. Yeah, very straightforward. Yeah. Um, she's just just laid it out there. Uh, oh, and by the way, her name is is Berger. Um, uh, last name is Berger. I think it's Kathleen Berger, but I could be wrong about that. Um, and then the other quote I really liked was. Nothing is totally genetic, not even such obvious traits as height or hair color, but nothing is untouched by genes. I really like that. Yeah, I really like that end part, that nothing is untouched by genes. Exactly right. It plays a very important role, and it is a role. It is not the role. Right. And so going back to those same metaphors I used, that you had to have the capacity – the genes had to give you the capacity for these environmental circumstances to be uh-huh. meaningful and, and interact with you in some way, but they didn't determine the, how that interaction necessarily would play out in the specific details. You know, mm-hmm. in a way, you know, they influenced what kind of biology you could have that you would be prepared to respond or react to those circumstances. Um, but how you respond and react to those circumstances was not just because of those um, those genes necessarily. Mm-hmm. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Uh, I can see hair color, eye color, that sort of stuff, height. Yeah. Like really uh, striking some of the listeners, right? Like that's something that's still ingrained to our culture. Yeah. You like, would... It's old. It's, you know, it came from your grandma or it came from your pops or right. whatever it was. <laughs> and and so those things, uh, absolutely, you get – the genes are going to influence like what is the likelihood that you're going to turn out to be really tall or really short. But even something like height, if you are really malnourished – 
or yeah. for whatever reason, put somewhere where your your growth is is very much restricted, that is going to affect how much those genes can actually be expressed. Um, and the same is true for eye color. And even um, I've heard of instances where eye color is changed based on exposure to certain chemicals and other things like that. Um, or damage to the, to the eyes I've heard yeah. can be. And so uh, the people have gone from having brown eyes to even as drastically colored as like blue eyes, okay. or at least one of them. Yeah. And so like these are things where, yeah, the gene set it up that it was it could turn out this way and is likely to turn out this way, but the environmental circumstances could affect or you know restrict or facilitate mm-hmm. how much those genes are really expressed. Yeah. And the last quote I want to read on here, um, this is from a guy who I think he actually is a journalist, maybe he's a psychologist. Um, his name is I think David Shank. Uh, he wrote this book, and in it he said he was actually quoting someone else, and I didn't I didn't find this. Re- resource specifically, but he was citing someone else who said, genes store information coding for the amino acids sequences of proteins. That is all. They do not code for parts of the nervous system, and they certainly do not code for particular behavior patterns. So, yeah, again, (laughs) sort of bold and, and sort of saying pretty, I think, bluntly up front what we can understand about how, um, we should interpret genes and the respect to behavior, at least, you know, from these people's opinions and the sources that they're pulling from. Yeah. So let's go ahead and just using what we've discussed so far, what can we conclude about genes and behavior specifically? So I think the first thing is they're extremely critical mm-hmm. in the development of uh, not only biology, but also what we do. Right. Actual behavior. Yeah, right? absolutely. And so I think the, and I sort of said this earlier, but the genes are going to provide the biological uh, arrangement that you have, so you know whatever you're born with, that allows you to react to certain ways to your environmental processes. So can we say that they kind of enable circumstances for behavior? Yes. Yeah? I love that. Okay. That's our, our next good sound bite. Okay, cool. <laughs> they enable circumstances for behavior. That's well said. Okay, great. So, um, and, and it's really interesting and useful to understand how changes in these biological processes, specifically at the level of genes here, but there are other ones you could talk about. They alter the context for the whole organism, and therefore they alter the context, at least to some degree, for how you can, uh, for, for behavior. Yeah. Cool. 100%. Uh, I could maybe give an example real quick, I think, of one of those. Let's I'll see lo- how it goes. Yeah, I love it. So parrots, a lot of people, uh, so a parrot will drink water through kind of curving its tongue and picking up from the bottom of its tongue. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people say it's a genetic sort of thing. Now, what it kind of is is yes, genes play a role in the, like the expression, right, and the shape of like how those beaks are formed. Right. Um, now, is it necessarily the genes per se, uh, or is it the way in which the beak was actually formed that kind of forces that behavioral pattern? Does right. that make sense? Absolutely. Okay. Does that count? Yeah. No, I totally think so. And I think another good example uh, is we. As humans, um, our genes enable our the retinas of our eyes to only capture certain wavelengths of light. Yeah. So if someone were to write something that reflected a wavelength of light that we simply can't see, then we will never interact with whatever it is that was written yeah. be- because our genes just – they have not prepared us to be able to react to that event or yeah. to, the, to the circumstances. Right. Good, good example that I mentioned of – I think it was in the self-management episode, mm-hmm. um, was when I was working in the fish lab and working with goldfish. Right. We worked in an automated hoop that they'd swim through. We mm-hmm. teach them to swim through it. And the automated hoop uh, was counted through an infrared beam. They could actually see the infrared beam. Oh, whereas cool. we could not. So it was very interesting to teach people that sort of aspect through that medium. Yeah. So what it was is new students would come into the lab. 
uh, they would be wondering why this fish isn't swimming through a hoop once yeah. you turned and plugged the hoop on. And it was, well, it pretty much looks like there's a wall there now. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you had to teach them that they could, like, go through that wall. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, and so, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but thinking about in terms of people might say, like, oh, I'm, I'm really good at art because... Um, I, you know, I'm genetically, it's just, it's just my genes. And, yeah. I, and actually this happened recently, um, cause I really love to draw and I'm, I'm decent at it and I'm no like artist or anything, but I really, I like to draw and I, I can usually put together a picture of the kind of anything I want to. Nice. And yeah. And so, uh, but neither of my parents ever got into art or drawing or anything. And so my mom told me when she was looking at some of my drawings, she's like, I have no idea where you get this from. And I'm like, practice and and a pencil and a piece of paper, (laughs) you know, and, and as far as genetics are concerned, I had to have hands that were capable of moving that pencil. I had to have eyes that were capable of visual stimulation, um, for seeing what it was I was drawing. And I had to, um, have a brain that was set up that it could interpret those patterns in some meaningful way so that I could both react to it as well as it could control my hand so that my hand could react to it. I am biologically set up to be able to draw and the extent to which I'm good at drawing is because I have all of the faculties I needed to and I had the opportunity to practice. Okay, so um, what can't genes do then? <laughs> it's more of, a, again, just this conclusion about um, what, well, what do genes do, what, what don't they do? Yeah, well, they can't do anything by themselves. Right. Pretty plain and simple, right? Yes. Whether it's our perspective or the other uh, experts that we kind of reference. Right. They just can't do it by themselves. Yeah. They're crucial. But they cannot do these things by themselves. Yeah, and I think this gets um, – well, and the other thing is that the environment can't do anything without the genes. Perfect. Yeah. I'm and, glad that you brought that in. Right. This goes back to that quote that Berger provided. Um, it's that you know nothing that – the environment's not interacting with us if there's no genetic – organism there's yeah. no behavior there's no biology there to interact with like it's doing nothing and if there's no biology to receive that environment then we're doing nothing so so they're not the causal variable right say they don't cause anything here but uh they are part of these complex behavioral patterns that are going on They've right played a role here and given another example so i give the one about how you know I've, I've got the right equipment to be able to draw um genes might determine your, uh, where your ears are on your body and how sensitive they are and whether or not you have working neural connections to your ears. And all of that's going to be necessary for you to form some kind of preference in music. If you can't hear anything, you probably – and you never heard anything in your whole life. You probably are not going to enjoy music a whole lot. Maybe you do. I could be wrong um, if you are listening to this podcast somehow with your earless head and you um, – you know, uh, then <laughs> I don't know how that'd work. I was trying to think of something, but I got nothing. No, I, 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 you know, if, if you, if, if you listen, if you, if somehow you're receiving this message and you don't have any cochlea or any ears or any auditory stimulation whatsoever, but you like music, I would really like to hear from you. But otherwise, like, I guess, I guess you're talking about, it wouldn't count if it was like translated over into visual and like text, right? Yeah. Like, well, because then you're not, you no longer, I'm not. I'm not even talking about the fact that uh, you might be able to visually decode something. It's that, like, do you enjoy listening with your ears to, yeah. to music? <laughs> you have to have ears for that, right? But the genes and the genes are going to determine whether or not you have ears and to what extent they're sensitive to sounds and that sort of thing. But they're not going to tell you that you have to listen to Metallica. Yeah. Like your genes aren't going to say you don't. There's no Katy Perry gene that's like you know you're, you're born with this. Uh, by the time I hit 15, I'm going to be on YouTube looking up everything Katy Perry does. It's just in my (laughs) genes, you know? And I think that people approach some of these things like genes. They're just, because our biology is so based in genes, um, it's tempting to try and explain everything we do in terms of, of the genes alone, but it's never the genes alone. The genes set the stage. Perfect. And I just one more, just because (laughs) 
I mean, this really could go on because this really is all human behavior. Genes are involved and the circumstances that allow those genes to be expressed are involved. Mm -hmm. So you can't determine, you can't look at someone's genes and know necessarily how good they're going to be at driving unless they're also blind or have no motor control. Then, then you'll have a pretty good idea how good they'll be at driving. Not good. Um, and uh, you, uh, you could also look at genes and how, well, you know, actually, I'm going I'm to tell you back, there's probably some uh, like technology that would allow someone who even doesn't have those basic connections to be good at driving. But anyway, um, you could look at someone's genes and know necessarily how good they're going to be at instruments. Um, they might be like uh, set up so that they have really sensitive ears or for whatever reason, um, they are really sensitive to, to really rapid changes in like noise. Um, maybe they'll be better at instruments if they have the opportunity to practice. But yep. those factors alone are not going to, does not mean that if you put a piano in front of them, they're just going to be the next Mozart. Yeah. You're not going to know anything about their preferences at all, right? Yeah. Yeah. Genes are going to tell you like where you want to live in the world. Um, what you enjoy doing on your weekend. Yeah. Right? Who, yeah. They're not going to turn your preferences for these things. Not the food you like, not the music you listen to, not the house you choose. Um, except that they are all related to the biological processes that are affected by those options. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's, that's my major spiel on sort of how genes are involved in this process. And just to point out, like we did when we were talking about the brain, it's absolutely critically important and genes are absolutely critical important, and they're a part of this whole interaction. It's just not the whole explanatory um, system to just say, well, if you're doing it, it's just got to be your genes. Well, yeah, of course, my genes are there, but like there are other things that are really important in understanding this too. Yeah, so we probably have some listeners hanging on the edge now saying, what about twin studies, right? Yeah. Um, and we're not going to go there in this episode, right? Yeah, no, actually, I plan to do a whole separate thing on twin studies and use that as – a, a forum to sort of discuss how we can look at genes that way. Mm -hmm. um, and that's it's just way too big for what we really want to do in this particular episode. Okay. But we were going to jump into uh, another term, right? Epigenetics? Yeah. So we mentioned that earlier uh, when we were talking about like where we we're going to go. Yeah. All right. So epigenetics, um, let's start by defining it really quick. And I'm actually not going to give like the dictionary definition. I'm just going to discuss briefly what it means. And epigenetics really refers to the extent to which um, environmental factors affect gene expression and how that gene expression that has been changed can carry on to the next generation. Okay? Yes. Um, now, most of the time, alterations, they don't actually – those type of alterations don't necessarily last more than a single generation. Uh, there might be some evidence that they can carry on longer. But usually what will happen is something can affect gene expression and then um, that, that – Particular change can be um, transferred over to the next generation, but then it'll be the normal gene expression unless something else changes thereafter. Yeah. So I've got a couple examples of these. Okay. Um, is there anything on the, the like epigenetics we want to cover first for examples? Well, I think – so I just mentioned this fact that like some things can change your genetic expression. And it's actually really important to know that your, your gene expression is really not static. Now, there are things that you can look at in your genes that are going to tell you certain things about like your ancestry and stuff, and that's probably that's really not going to change. But there are other gene expressions like how much does your thyroid work and all that sort of thing. I don't know why is that as an example. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, <laughs> gene expression is constantly changing throughout your life. And uh, this can be seen in a lot of different things, you know, even as you grow old and how that's going to change um, your bodily functions and that sort of thing. Those all, all sort of show up. And so 
although I mentioned that like there can be these events that change your genetic expression, there's actually it, – it's happening constantly, like all the time. Even yeah. as you're sitting here listening to this, certain things are affecting how your genes are being expressed because there's, there's a lot of – Yeah, I remember the first time I heard of epigenetics. It was in a class in my master's program and it made me kind of step back and think of like maybe that's why you know certain people maybe smoke their whole life but they don't mm-hmm. – you know like we have different, I guess, end results for those things, whether it's cancer or not, you know? Yeah. Like, um, and it's not like, I don't know the answer. I don't know if anyone knows the answer to those sort of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was kind of this way to look at the world and be like, wow, it's way more complex than I thought. There's a lot of things that are always changing. Like mm-hmm. it is literally just exponential and just like all over the place. Right. Um, so it makes sense as to like why we don't have these answers. Yeah. Um, so I guess I'll jump into a couple of examples of like epigenetics that I was, I was kind of pitched in my class. All right. Okay. So the first one was, uh, and I'm going to link both of these in the show notes, like just, uh, more reading on them. Um, okay. cause I will not do them justice, but I'm just going to kind of do a high level overview. So the first was uh, a rat study where they were trying to, I don't remember how they came about this. Um, but it was vitamin B12. Okay. And when they altered vitamin B12, um, in the mother prior to uh, her having a litter, um, the presence or absence of that could actually change two things. Uh, the, whether or not the rats had a certain type of uh, color of fur, as well as uh, whether they would be more obese or not. Um, and it was like there or not because of the alteration of this like mechanism of B12. Okay. Um, it was very, very interesting to me. Yeah. And from there, the same thing like you were talking about, like they didn't see this progression. And the, the big question that I've always seen in the epigenetic um, talk and literature is to what extent do these really carry on past that, you know, one generation? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen a lot of people that I guess I respect chime in and just say, be very careful um, in that, you know, this one thing might only be this, you know, might, might only happen on one generation, right? Not carry on. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that I thought was really interesting is uh, there were some folks that took this back to looking at World War II and some of the countries that experienced famine mm-hmm. in those times. And essentially, they tried tracing down some lineage, and this gets even messier on like there's no real way to kind of control for this. But they were looking at the extent to which these famines may have led to future generations, um, essentially, their gene expression. Um, being a factor for them uh, carrying more weight throughout their life mm. as a result of their past relatives going through this famine. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Um, I was just I was gonna make a joke about how my, one of my an- several generations of my ancestors must have, must have been famished. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, again, they were just like it was one of these like extrapolations of like uh, where this could probably go. Um, but there's no causal variables there. So um, it was an area, I guess, those are two examples of some of the, one was uh, a controlled research, the other one was kind of this explanatory thing, or exploratory um, area of like where these this could lead implication-wise. Um, I thought they were very interesting, at the very, at the very least. Yeah. So uh, the vitamin B12 is uh, pretty interesting, um, and that, that speaks to, you know, I was going to mention some things, like what other kind of events or exposures might uh, affect how our genes change in this sort of epigenetic fashion. And so a list that I got from a book um, called The Science of Consequences by Susan Schneider, um, this is actually a totally partial list. This isn't everything that was yeah. in there, um, but mentioned, and she said some research for this, that uh, visual stimulation can change gene expression, sounds, smells, chemicals, um, even like actions such as like exercise um, or dietary preference or, you know, other things, um, all of these things can actually influence how genes are expressed. 
And some of them are more easily influenced than others, but uh, what can happen is that when that gene expression changes, that now changes the circumstances in which you're behaving. And so um, your behavior might shift as a function of that, but also the environmental circumstance was the one that produced that change in the genetic expression in the first place, yeah. which you're now behaving differently in the environment. And so that, that, that new interaction that you have is going to be a little bit different again. Um, and it's, gonna, it's just going to be this constant back and forth effect that's going on cool all right so yeah. let's, so i guess we we now need to dig in more to a little bit of the history of of the epigenetic effects and and then we'll i think we'll bring it back to sort of big picture um and then we will I just sort of wrap it up there Can i wrap think. it up there yeah okay i'm good yeah so okay. this is a little bit of what should be a much bigger story that we'll tell some other time um but there was a researcher zingyang guo and he had a book, uh, something titled around like uh, epigenetic, epigenetic behaviorism. I thought it was very interesting because it was published, I believe, in 1967. And this epigenetic thing was kind of all the research that I was uh, being ref, like the, was being referenced in my class was from the early 2000s. Sure. And that sort of, I know it's, at least in uh, the classes and kind of the circles that I'm in, was getting a lot of um, talk about recent developments in these areas. Mm -hmm. So dove in a little bit more, and essentially uh, he was born on the southern coast of China, and it was so it was around 1918 when he came over to America after some unrest in China, okay. and he started studying. He was really interested in this concept of uh, instinct. Okay. Um, so he looked at instinct, and his he was kind of set out to just essentially kind of crush. Uh, instinct being the variable as to why people do what they do. That was a hot topic at that time. Yeah, it was. Um, and he walked that out a lot. I think instincts are something we could maybe take on, on a whole separate topic sometime. But he essentially bounced around a couple different times between China and the U.S., uh, particularly around World War II and some different things were going on um, socially. But he had an inheritance um, at one point, and then he essentially built a three-story research lab and Sweet. he spent 12 to 14 hours a day, seven days a week, looking at these sort of epigenetic sort of things. And at the end of all this, after, you know, 20, 30 years of not only moving across countries back, you know, when you're riding like on these wooden ships and stuff like that right. to get across, um, he got a lot of research done. And he came down to essentially a few certain things. So he had five groups of what he called determining factors. So I want to hit those real quick. Okay. First one was what he called morphological factors. And... That uh, morphological just is looking at uh, the structure of how an organism or living thing is put together. Right. So a very simple way to think about these sort of things is uh, you and I cannot fly. We don't have wings. Uh, if we step off the edge of a building, we are not going to sustain ourselves, right? True. Now, anything with feathers, uh, besides an ostrich maybe, <laughs> like has a much better chance that those sort of things happen, right? So there's just many examples of flightless bird. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's one factor. So he was saying, so at the end of his research, he said morphological factors are things um, that need to be taken into account when we're looking at the behavior and why behavior occurs. Right. Next one was biophysical and biochemical factors. I am not an expert in those areas, but this is where um, a lot of the chemical and biological uh, things we've talked about can be housed in his system. So it might be like hormones and even neurotransmitter, like brain chemicals um, that are present, and 
and like how maybe the the muscles work, like what kind of chemicals make the muscles contract, and that will influence how quickly they can contract and that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. So um, yeah, perfectly summarized. Way, way to go, Abraham. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, uh, so his third factor was stimulating objects. Uh, these are just the things out in the environment, in the environment that we interact with. Mm-hmm. Uh, he then talked about developmental history. Uh, history essentially is everything that you've contacted uh, up until that point, and it's just continually evolving, right? And a good, good example of that actually might be preference for certain types of tastes, um, especially in animals. Um, for anybody who's listening to this who might have a cat um, and notice that they are particular, and dogs do this too, um, mm-hmm. and get really, really picky with the type of food that they are willing to eat. But um, interestingly, uh, cats that are maybe feral, are less likely to be picky. They'll just kind of eat whatever they can that comes in front of them um, because for them, their history, the developmental history, um, has been that the opportunity for a meal is like take it because the the next one may not be forthcoming. And so a preference for flavor has not really been an option um, in, in that particular circumstance. Yeah. And you, you know, other cultures, I think, do a similar thing where it's the food that's available in their region are the kind of things that they're going to eat. Yeah. And so the kind of uh, flavors that they prefer are based on what's available to them and what's uh, part of their culture. Yeah, it makes sense, especially with the repeated tastings like literature, right? Yeah. You try things a few times and you get this development. Wait, did you say like literature? Sorry. Yeah, the, the repeated tastings. So like there's research looking at like uh, basically takes two, three times of like tasting things to oh, kind of develop. I thought you meant like a book. Like oh, you're no, like no. licking a book. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I have this image of you just like, <laughs> is this book any good? And you taste the spine of the book. Like, I don't like it right now. I'm going to come back in a week. No, 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 okay. no. Okay. I, I know what you're talking about then with the uh, like the food dudes stuff. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. That I'm familiar with. Okay. The lit- word literature, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Threw us off. Sorry. Yeah, so so the fourth one he had was developmental history. Um, the last one was developmental context, and context I think is just easiest to talk about as um, – I kind of threw an example for this one, which I know isn't the best way to kind of talk about it, but I think it, it, it does it justice. So what it is is it's not just, I guess, the stimulating objects um, and kind of the environment that's determining – or the object alone that determines what's going on. It's it's the context that is occurring in. So what I'm getting at is under two different environmental contexts, we can actually have two very different behaviors shape up. So where I'm kind of going with this is that uh, under two different environmental contexts, you have two very different behaviors. Even for the same like animal or person. Same person, yes. Yeah. So uh, oftentimes, sometimes I've like uh, come into contexts where you're, you're working with a child and you're helping a child in a school setting. Mm-hmm. And you'll have parents say, I've never seen that sort of thing before right. <laughs> at yeah. home, right? Absolutely. And what it is, is yes, and what it, what it, and it could be vice versa too. Uh, they've never seen it at the school as well. Um, so they're seeing totally different things. And there's a few reasons why that sort of stuff can occur. Um, but essentially what it comes down to is this context and the, the different variables, different people involved in each mm-hmm. um, can essentially shape up different behavioral patterns, right? Right. Yeah, Absolutely. So uh, those were his five different factors, morphological factors, biophysical and biochemical factors as one itself, uh, the stimulating objects, developmental history, and developmental context. And uh, I just mentioned that as a framework to kind of think about like the different things that we, so we're always saying, like, it's not one thing, it's all these things. So that was one framework that you can kind of think about um, these five different factors when you're trying to think about why it is that we do what we do. Mm-hmm. Um and one example, though, of like, I guess what kind of came about this and what he was interested in looking at was he really jumped into for, I think, somewhere around 20 years, 
uh, studying the behavioral patterns and the development of chicks, little baby chicks. Mm -hmm. So from embryo stages all the way up until um, past when they were hatching. And he kind of figured out these 12 stages and he used stages as just a way to communicate it. It's not like you're moving from one to the next, but right. he needed kind of clear ways in which you could say you're at one stage and you're going to the next stage. Sort of like saying like a benchmark of, the, you know, what, describing how things progress and arbitrarily deciding at this point, this seems like a significant enough change that I'm going to call this a next stage, right? Yes, okay. exactly. Um, and he, he developed a cool, so part of it was he spent years figuring out how to kind of look at the inside of eggs without disrupting them. Um, so I saw this about two years ago pop up as it was discovered, quote unquote, yeah. um, that you could, uh, that researchers have found a way to uh, essentially kind of re alter the shell to where the chick could still develop, um, but you could see within it. And he actually figured that out some 60 years before this other research. That's a good yeah. example of how uh, things kind of get lost um, in our science. We rediscover things. So an example of like uh, why this is relevant is he, he now had a way to study. He could kind of figure out these different stages that we talked about. Um, and I want to give an example of those. And that was that there was kind of like he found that there was four conditions that were necessary for an egg to hatch. And that was respiration needed, respiration needed to be occurring. Um, the position of the remaining yolk sac actually was a factor in which where it was actually positioned within the egg. Sure. Um, the shell had to be dry. Um, and then there had to be a certain amount of circulation occurring or seized, depending on like what you're looking at within the egg, um, for hatching to actually occur. So... I was going to try to bring this back as into like what was Guo interested in, like why are we kind of talking about this. Mm -hmm. He was very interested in like how these different areas of biology, chemistry, its environmental context, influence, etc., um, came into one. And his framework was really that it was a lot more complex. It's not just this one thing. His one thing was instincts. It wasn't genetics like we're kind of talking about today. Mm -hmm. um, what he said is if you look at all these factors, then you have a lot better of a framework to kind of approach the world and look at things through. Okay. Yeah, so one real quick, you were talking about phenotypes earlier, right? Uh, genotypes, genotypes, but phenotypes are important too. Can you hit both of those again real quick? Uh, well, so uh, genotype refers to the, uh, the total genetic makeup of a person, and the phenotype is the set of characteristics that you will see in a particular individual that are, the res are caused by the interaction between the genotype and the environment. So it's, the genotype is just the, the total genetic um, makeup and the phenotype is observable characteristics. Okay, yeah. So to tie this into Guo and like what he was really interested in is he was thinking that someday what we could do is we could understand all these different factors as to why uh, we do what we do. And what it would lead to is these kind of new behavioral, he called them neo-phenotypes. Okay. So what it is is... Um, the epigenetic behaviorist, quote unquote, mm -hmm. which is his thing, um, or I kind of look at it as like uh, psychology could maybe look at in the ways in which all these things happen mm -hmm. and maybe provide a framework on how to shape up behavior or influence behavior that can kind of counteract what's going on in our environment. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's not just like for uh, kind of a crazy example, like it's not just like we need to focus on um, – hitting uh environmental influences so let's take an example like climate change we could look at it through the environmental factors and saying we need to reduce certain things but his thing was like maybe we can look at the way in which behaviors are shaped mm -hmm. um from throughout the lifetime because mm -hmm. a lot of those could be maybe restricted over time um or maybe not uh, quote unquote you know like expressed uh you know to kind of use that metaphor right and what we could do is as a society look at how do we actually shape up behavioral patterns that could help 
uh, counteract those environmental things and, you know, help uh, actually counter uh, something like climate change. Okay. Makes sense? Yeah, totally. Okay, cool. All right, so um, the, the, the big picture I think here, all that we've been discussing with respect to genes is that you can change behavior and circumstances and that is going to affect um, how that genetic expression of the organism, the person or the animal reacts to those circumstances because their biology of that, uh, that organism is now differently prepared to interact and react to those circumstances based on that change in that interaction. Okay. So that, that's sort of the big picture is just that, um, the gene, again, I like to say in class, the genes set the stage, the environment seals the deal. And <laughs> yeah, so you get, you know, you're, you're capable of certain things because your genes enable those, uh, those interactions to occur. The nature of those interactions are going to influence how those genes occur. And those are, they're just part of the whole behavioral process. So, and I remember saying, when I said earlier, it, it was pointless to try and separate those two. And at the level of just understanding, um, looking at behavior as the, that whole interaction and that back and forth process. Um, I, you know, I, st I stand by that it's not particularly useful to say that there's just one and just the other. However, you might look at how you want to intervene on those things. And that's where I was planning to close this out is just um, there, there's, there's this thing called gene therapy and the, there's basically three parts of gene therapy and there's uh, replacing defective genes or genes that are, um, being expressed in such a way that they're harmful. Uh, there's knocking out is what they call it. Um, which is basically destroying, um, yeah. uh, mutated or improperly functioning genes, genes that lead to again, problems. And then the other part of this is introducing a new genetic sequence that can either replace or, you know, supplant or superimpose, yeah. um, on top of these. And so that new genetic sequence and what that's going to do is that alters that whole biological circumstance, which then makes it so that you interact differently with those circumstances. Um, and now I think it's important to look at if this is really useful when you have a problem that's caused at the level of gene mutations and genetic problems mm -hmm. like that, that's a really good place that you want to use this. It's just important to know, like this is, that is a pretty invasive procedure. And yeah. if you have, a behavior that has that's been shaped up primarily by the environmental circumstances that simply capitalized on the availability of that genetic uh, circumstance for that person, um, then it's a lot it's a lot less invasive and a lot easier okay. to just simply go in and change those circumstances in their environment instead. And so, there, I mean, it could be a two-pronged approach. You could do both. You know, you could alter the genes and alter the environment and you could go that way. You could just alter the genes and hopefully that will prepare that organism to interact with that environment that they're in differently. And, uh, or you could change the environment. And I think for me, a metaphor, uh, or maybe an analogy for how this might look is it's sort of like, let's say you live in a house that, um, is filling up with poison gas. Um, the genetic approach is just put on a gas mask, uh -huh. um, because now you've changed the way that you interact with the environment that you're in. Yeah. Um, the environmental approach is open some windows and get, <laughs> get the gas out of there uh -huh. and then you don't have to change uh -huh. how the genes are set up. Um, or you could do both. You could air out the entire house and still wear a gas mask. That's probably the best and option. if it ever fills up with poison again, you're well prepared to deal with it. Um, but uh, that's and maybe that's not a very fair analogy. It's probably missing some crucial details. But just this whole idea that the um, it really depends on what sort of the level of the problem is. Yeah. Like if you're if you live in a world that's full of poisonous gas, well, you don't just get to open a window and get rid of it. You're gonna need that gas mask. Yeah, you need to walk around. And so for some people, that's kind of how their world is. Like 
every environment seems toxic to their genetic makeup. So the the gene therapy is the best way to go because that's going to be the most comprehensive way of dealing with all the environments they're going to be in. But for certain people, as you, you pointed out earlier, it's those environmental circumstances are just different from place to place and their behavior changes in accordance with those environments. And so we can see that they're genetically fine in one environment um, but they behave very differently in another one. And so then we look at, okay, the simplest change here is open the windows, get the poison gas out. We're going to change this environment over here. And, um, because we know that other environments are more facilitating, um, to this kind of behavior that is more useful and yeah. more productive. That's a lot of stuff. Great. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> All right. Do you have anything else you want to cover on this? I think that's good. Cool, man. We'll, uh, see how the comment sections do. Yeah, exactly. A scary area. There's yeah. a lot. There's a lot that goes into this. Yeah, so uh, we'd love to hear from you. Please send us your feedback. Um, if you are enjoying the podcast so far, you'd like to help us out, um, you don't necessarily uh, need to, to give us any money. Uh, you can if you want to. Um, but simply clicking that subscribe button helps. That, uh, that, that, that shows us in the ratings about how we're doing, um, how people are liking the podcast. Uh, leaving a review is super helpful. So in iTunes or Google Play or um, Podcast Addict, Stitcher, wherever. Or whatever yeah. it is that you're in, yeah. Exactly. Wherever you can leave a review, that really helps out the algorithm and helps out uh, the show. Um, and, and so, yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for listening. I think we're out. That's it. Yep. Abraham and Rhino out. Signing off. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by ABAI's Disseminating Behavior Analysis Special Interest Group and our amazing listeners. If you like what you heard, consider heading to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash podcast. Anything helps, and we are continuously lining up perks and merch for our supporters. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is Abraham, Ryan O, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brucier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Brendan Bohr does our episode art. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.